Hello and welcome to the Practical Neurology Podcast, the essential guide to the everyday life of all neurologists. I'm joined today by Dr. Nick Kane, who's a consultant neurophysiologist in Bristol, to discuss the editor's choice for the February edition of Practical Neurology. This is a, a work from Holly Morris, who's a healthcare scientist in Bristol, a neurophysiologist, and Professor Peter Kaplan, who's a professor of neurology in uh, Baltimore. And they've done an amazing review of the EEG and its characteristics in encephalopathy and encephalitis. And I love this review because I, I get the topic in advance and I read this one and thought, oh, great, this is something I really need to know more about. And then got very scared about asking the questions. But what's amazing about it is it's it's a really great breakdown of a really challenging topic. And I think what you've done, Nick, and, and your team and what Holly's done really beautifully is to, to break this down to be really accessible for the general neurologist and for people just starting out on their journey. Well, thank you, Amy. It's lovely to be with you. I wondered if we could start really basic. Just what do you get when you request an EEG for a patient? What happens to them? What do they need to be able to do in order to have one done? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, so, you know, EEG, which is a really old school technology, you know, we're talking 100 years now and, and was sort of falling off the, the face, really, of neurology investigations. But I think there's been a renaissance recently. And I think it is just that it's that you're faced by the patient, you know, who's just got a little bit of neurological dysfunction, not quite right, um, a bit of altered mental status. And you're really not sure, you know, what that the status of the patient is. And the beauty of the test, as, as we point out, is that it's non-invasive it's harmless to the patient, uh, it isn't painful, we can take it to the bedside, the patient doesn't need to do anything at all, it's completely passive, they can sit in a chair, lie in a bed, um, it doesn't really matter where it's done. So the preparation from a patient point of view is virtually nil. They don't have to get excited or anxious about it, there's no sedation involved. Um, you know, it's one of those tests that just can be taken to a patient bedside, set up uh, and recorded and interpreted pretty much in real time. So um, those are some of its distinct advantages. There are, of course, disadvantages. But from a patient perspective, it's just turning up to the hospital or actually being in the hospital and having a, a passive recording done to them, which most of them really enjoy because they're fascinated by the concept of, of, of you know, having their, their mind read. Yeah, absolutely. How, um, how precious a resource is it? Is it, is it hugely expensive? Is it hugely time-consuming? No, I mean, again, one of the beauties of it is for the UK, it's relatively inexpensive. You're talking, you know, for an adult, just over 200 and, and, and just over 250 for a child on average. So it's not an expensive test. Um, it's pretty widely available, certainly through neuroscience centres, but you often find it in district general hospitals. Uh, but we do coalesce in the neuroscience centres where there tends to be a bit more expertise and perhaps a little bit more in depth in terms of what investigations can be performed with neurophysiology. I'm thinking in terms of evoked potentials here, video EG, prolonged recordings with ambulatory recording on ITU where we sometimes use quantitative EG techniques to further uh, analyse the EG in depth and things like interoperative monitoring as well for the, our neurosurgical and orthopaedic colleagues. Yeah. You get a lot of requests, I'm sure, but I wonder if you could just talk us through when you think the EEG is most useful, the scenarios when we should be thinking about it, when perhaps we might not, uh, the times when it adds the most value to a clinical case. 
So undoubtedly, um, you know, it's number one indication is anybody who's had a seizure and, you know, epilepsy is it's is it's really uh, the area where um, EEG excels because what it does, it helps you confirm a clinical diagnosis, which, as you know, as a neurologist, can be extremely challenging sorting out the diagnostic sieve of a fit, faint, funny turn and what that is. So in terms of making um, or confirming a diagnosis, EEG is useful. Now, where it's not so useful is it has poor sensitivity. So it may be only up to about 50% of patients that are initially EG routine recording with an awake patient may reveal an intraictal abnormality that confirms your diagnosis, but more importantly, allows you to classify the epilepsy according to whether it's generalized or whether it's focal in broad terms. But where it comes in handy is when you can repeat it, because that's actually, you know, there's some very good work showing that serial EEGs will actually eventually out any epileptiform abnormality in about 90% of patients. And you usually have to record about four or five EEGs to reveal that, usually with some techniques that we'll use to try and uh, bring them out, such as sleep deprivation or a prolonged recording with ambulatory or video EEG. So um, it's useful for epilepsy. But increasingly, what our requests are really uh, being asked for, and particularly in the hospital setting, are patients with altered mental status on the wards, and particularly in intensive care where patients aren't waking up from, uh, you know, brain injury of some sort, um, and there's concern over whether they may be having non-convulsive seizures or even in status epilepticus, which has become, uh, you know, a very fashionable diagnosis and one of great concern to our intensive care colleagues. So we're spending an awful lot of time, certainly in neuroscience centres these days, um, going to ITUs two or three recordings a day off often to see if there are any patients with with ongoing seizures that's preventing them waking up and restoring normal mental function. What do you think your yield is from that? Low. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it is a recognised diagnosis. Um, my co-author, Peter Kaplan, wrote a beautiful review a few years ago um, now, which was uh, was uh, overdiagnosed and undertreated. And I think that just about sums it up. Um, I, I think, you know, people see twitching and movement in patients in ITU, often with withdrawal of propofol and midazolam, which seems to cause a little bit of hyperexcitability um, and therefore little twitches and jerks and movements that look a bit abnormal normal to treating physicians and perhaps um, aren't always with a neurology training, but interpret these movements as possibly epileptiform. So we'll get asked to do lots of EGs. The yield is low. I can't give you an exact figure, but I would say probably less than about one in 50. Uh, but what often we'll find interesting things such as over sedation in a patient, for example, and this is a frequent occurrence where patients aren't waking up because, you know, they've been on sedation for three or four days with propofol and midazolam, which is a tribe compartment drug and therefore is redistributing from fat and muscle and therefore still sedating a patient even they may have withdrawn from active um, sedation and uh, you know it just is continuing to keep their mental function suppressed so um, it's useful in that situation and can be quite useful revealing um, underlying pathology which has been unsuspected um, ischemia or a hypoxemic insult that's happened during the intensive care when a patient may have had you know a hypotensive episode or uh, something where, you know, where, where um, uh, the brain has been, uh, had a secondary insult um, so that, uh, again, that may be picked up by an EEG. So that's the beauty of the test, which, as I say, can be performed on the intensive care unit um, at the patient bedside. Yeah, exactly. And, and guiding the rest of your care as well. 
when I was reading the paper, I was sort of taken back to the really great ILAE course that I did uh, in Cambridge a few years ago. And what was really great about it is they make you think about the EG as a dynamic test and a sort of interpreting as you go. And it's much more like um, clinical examination, an extension of clinical examination than it is seeing the sodium or seeing the blood pressure or, or, or seeing, you know, sometimes even a picture of a scan. And, and I was really struck by reading that and reading your description of sort of slipping into a coma. And I wondered if you could just walk us through what it is to drift into a coma and what you see on the EEG as you get into a deeper coma. And then we can maybe explore some of the specific features of metabolic or uremic or you know, some of the particular changes that you see um, as we go. Yes, that's a great question. And I'm really I'm glad you put it into clinical context. Even as neurophysiologists lock ourselves away in rooms looking at screens with wiggly lines on, we're always concerned about the clinical context and understanding of what these changes are, how they apply to physiology, how they apply to the general condition of the patient. Um, but you're absolutely right. The EG follows a sort of progressive proportionate disturbance according to cerebral function. It's not perfectly. You couldn't say the EG for a Glasgow Coma score of eight has eight specific pattern. But there's this general progression which gives us an idea really of the severity of an encephalopathic process as one goes from mild confusion into a comatose state. And that really starts with the slowing of the posterior dominant rhythm, which you'll have been hammered home on the ILEA course in Cambridge with my wonderful colleagues um, that provide that fantastic course, where you lose the alpha rhythm. The alpha rhythm is our North Star, if you like. We look for that for normality. That is the alpha rhythm, which is generated in the occipital cortex, a rhythm between 8 and 13 hertz that responds to eye opening and closure. It reacts to eye opening and closure. And when EG reactivity is lost as we progressively slip into coma, you'll find that posterior dominant alpha rhythm will be lost as well and you'll have slower rhythms replacing it. Uh, we refer to theta and then delta which is slower still between firstly four and seven and then below four hertz which are the indication that the patient is starting to lose consciousness, lose um, uh, the ability to be ambulant and communicate. So those are signs that there's significant dysfunction um, going on. You lose the organization of the EG, which, which has a particular morphology with an anterior to posterior gradient where information is flowing interhemispherically and produces this lag of the rhythmic activity from front to back. Um, also, if you're recording during sleep, you'll lose the normal sleep architecture and the phenomena that we associate with it. Vertex sharp waves, for example, posterior sharp transients of sleep, the slow wave pattern that we see in deeper levels of sleep. And as this progresses, these features are all lost and just replaced by rather um, amorphic slow activity, which doesn't really have a structure. It doesn't really react to the patient if they're stimulated or their eyes are open, for example. And then depending on the actual cause of the coma, we start to see an emergence of some of what we refer to as the grapho elements, the EG features that sometimes uh, will indicate a specific pathology. In the paper, we do uh, emphasize that EEG is not specific for 
particular diagnoses, but sometimes it can suggest them. And again, this is one of its limitations, the non-specific element of it. And, and, and people do struggle with that because they think the test doesn't really give them very helpful information. But sometimes it will do. And we mentioned things you the point of, of hepatic encephalopathy, where one might see triphasic ways. They're not specific to hepatic encephalopathy, but they are a feature of it. Uh, but sometimes we'll see particular patterns like generalized periodic discharges in, for example, Creutzfeldt-Jakob uh, disease, the old variant wild type, or we might see extreme delta brushes in a particular type of autoimmune encephalitis associated with NMDR receptor antagonists. The, but the EEG will sometimes give you hints as to a particular pathophysiology according to a certain pattern or phenotype of the EEG. Yeah, I'm, I'm really pleased you, you highlighted that sort of lack of specificity and the, the sort of myth busting for this idea that, that there's sort of total pathognomic signs that mean it's hepatic and mean it's not. Do you find that that in clinical practice, usually when you see something that is associated with a condition, it's that condition. So, um, f for example, uh, you would often quite frequently see them in, 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 in the old kids on the block, the toxic, uremic, and increasingly we're seeing it in hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, triphasic waves. Um, sometimes we'll see them in viral encephalitis as well. So, you know, they're not specific to that any particular uh, pathology, but they are an indicator that there's probably been some uh, significant injury to, you know, so we're giving a depth or a severity now uh, because these are seen in the later, more advanced, more severe stages of encephalopathy. These are where there are structural changes often associated with the underlying condition. And just briefly, periodic discharges. So you mentioned PLEDs or periodic lateralized epileptiform yes. discharges and then periodic discharges in uh, often associated with CJD. Just pull apart what you mean by those different things, if you could. Yeah, absolutely. A good point. So um, PLED has changed to an LPD because what we've done is we've taken out the epileptic form because now we're seeing these PLEDs and GPEDs rather than uh, GPED. So again, we've taken the epileptic form out because these are patterns which we associate now with a disease of the brain, an agonal pattern, if you like, a cry for help from neural tissue that's in a critical metabolic state where it's probably hypoxic. There may be direct invasion of neurons for example, by an infective process, neurotrophism, or, you know, there's a metabolic crisis within that cell. And that's important because although they're not always associated with epilepsy and seizures, they do increase the risk of them. So we now refer to PLEDs, old school. Um, uh, the new name is lateralized periodic discharge. Note the absence of epileptic form and generalized periodic discharge similarly without the epileptic form. So their patterns, really, I like to think of agonal brain tissue crying out for help, you know, give me oxygen, give me, give me sugar, give me ATP. They need energy, they need oxygen, um, they're suffering, and that's all the, the, the brain can do. It either puts up or shuts up because the next step after these discharge, which is ephemeral, they often disappear and they're replaced by then quiescence or um, electrocerebral inactivity, old name isoelectric EEG, a flat EEG, where you're seeing neural tissue now which is losing its ability to maintain transmembrane ionic potentials. So it's actually, you know, dying essentially. Um, and that, of course, is the stage that you want to interrupt. You want to try and treat something um, at the stage where if you're identifying ischemia or if you're identifying 
um, epileptorm discharge, which is damaging and causing, you know, excitotoxic injury to the cell. That's the stage you want to treat it at. And this is where continuous monitoring is going on intensive care is trying to detect these changes like, you know, um, subclinical or non-convulsive seizures and status and ischemia happening. And this is the challenge for EEG with long-term monitoring. Um, anyone can do long-term monitoring, sticking on an EEG. The challenge for us, and particularly um, in a small specialty, say in the UK, where you haven't got many EEG experts, it's the continuous interpretation and I, for one, and this is a personal view, I'm, it's, it's opinion, not insight. Um, I, for one, think that, uh, that, that uh, machine learning, you know, is going to probably provide the answer to long-term monitoring and its interpretation. I'm not saying there isn't need for a human oversight of that, but I think to provide 24-7 EG monitoring intensive care units, you're going to need some kind of automated um, artificial intelligence interpretation of the EG. And I think it's nearly there. You know, we're getting some quite good results now uh, that's showing that artificial intelligence is probably good as an expert reader at picking up some of these abnormalities that we see in intensive care and even classifying um, epileptic disorders. I'm so glad you mentioned that. You pinched my question. I was I was going to ask you if you thought AI was going to was going to take off for EEG interpretation. When what sort of time frame do you think that's likely to happen over? I think it's here now. Um, I, you know, I'm talking myself out of a job. I appreciate, but um, I, I think you know, with 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 human um, in in interaction and 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 quantification, you know, there's some really good studies that have come out very recently. You know, I'd point um, your audience to a very very good paper that just came out um, in JAMA Neurology at the end of last year from Jesper Tavit, Harold Aurelian, um, and oversight by Sander Benziki, which is automated interpretation of clinical EEG using artificial intelligence intelligence. Um, and that really does bring it home that we are now ready to, you know, analyze routine outpatient recordings. This is a multi-center diagnostic trial, and they showed that the automation was as good as 14 EEG experts looking at a database of over um, over uh, 10,000 EEGs. So, you know, a really big, you know, important study using lots of, um, you know, readers and uh, getting a really good valid validation of uh, automated interpretation of the EEG. I'm not saying that you don't still need neurophysiologists and you certainly still need neurologists because it's interpretation of that and putting it into the clinical context as we mentioned earlier which is which is a human element you know a machine will give you a, a number a, you know e e computers are absolutely great at eating data that's what they do for breakfast uh, but that application and interpretation within the clinical context I still think needs the human nuance um, to know when something is relevant and, and how that ties into the clinical picture and put it in into the appropriate, you know, classification and, and interpretation of what that means for the patient and what treatment may or may not be relevant for that particular abnormality. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And you're chiming very much with what uh, Professor James Teo said on the uh, on the last podcast we did, which is all about artificial intelligence. I'm particularly interested in infection. And um, I was really interested to read your comments about COVID-19 and the EEG changes that you observed in that population. And if I've read it right, I think you said you saw a fairly broad spectrum of changes rather than one specific pattern that was there. Um, do you think that reflects sort of different pathologies that's going on? Or do you think we just haven't got enough data yet to know? 
Yeah, no, I, I really agree with you. Um, so yes, um, neuroinflammation undoubtedly is a really um, interesting area for EEG at the moment. Um, autoimmune encephalitis, which we'll touch on in a moment, but COVID, you know, obviously that's that's um, been a really interesting learning experience. Um, so we published a very small series, a colleague of mine, Luke Canham, uh, and some of our excellent physiology colleagues, Leila and Lydia, who put together our, our initial series. You know, everyone was publishing uh, papers on COVID-19, I'm afraid we're guilty as well and um, you know it's quite clear that um, that that covid is associated with an encephalopathy you're absolutely right. What is the pathophysiology? Well, I know a number of things have been put forward. Obviously, the, the hypoxia, uh, the systemic illness. Uh, we now know much about the hypercoagulability, the endothelial dysfunction, just generally being unwell, undoubtedly um, neuroinflammation. And indeed, I think probably neurotrophism, the direct invasion of the CNS by by um, the COVID-19 um, uh, virus. So I think, you know, it's still an emerging pathophysiology. We're learning about it. I'm very interested in it. The EEG patterns are fairly variable, but um, one of the things that came out of our brief series was that whenever you see a focal or a lateralized abnormality, that's an indication for a scan because usually these patients will have had um, either secondary insults such as an infarct um, or opportunist infection. So uh, these are the things that we picked up when there's a, a lateralized or focal abnormality. Yes, ab absolutely, absolutely. And um, I think ha having looked at some of the national uh, national cases that were reported, there was definitely this sort of subset of encephalopathy. At the time, it made us think quite a lot about similarities to sepsis-associated encephalopathy. I wonder if you could just maybe break down what a neurophysiologist means when they say sepsis-associated encephalopathy or, or what we can get from an EEG when we're looking at people with a, a systemic sepsis who are encephalopathic? Yeah, great question again. Um, I'm glad you've kind of asked that because I think it's an extension of it. And I think one of the things that I've learned, um, you know, the past 25 years of my career is, is probably the commonest cause of encephalopathy is sepsis. Um, you know, uh, as an F1, you learn about the little old lady who's stuck in a corner and has a UTI and suddenly goes, do lally. And, you know, this is this is a, a common scenario on general wards. And, you know, when we do the EG, we find they're encephalopathic. Um so it's extra cerebral sepsis we're talking about here. Um, and as you know, the clinical presentation, mild confusion all the way down to coma. Its pathophysiology is undoubtedly complex, and you'll probably know more about it than me as, as a neuroinflammatory expert. But I think it's uh, underpinned by, you know, neuroimmune processes and, and neurotransmitter dysfunction, possibly some inflammation, possibly ischemia. I'd be very interested in your views. Um, Blood-brain barrier dysfunction, you know, so uh, there may be a toxic element added on top. And, you know, we're giving patients toxic drugs often at the time that they're having this because they're in hospital with multiple comorbidities and on, on various, you know, effective but often uh, potentially neurotoxic drugs. Um, EG features very, very nonspecific. It's a clinical, you know, diagnosis, but the EG just lends support to the fact, you know, you're dealing with a, an organic disease here. It's nearly always just diffuse slowing, um, loss of those normal uh, features that I mentioned earlier, the posterior dominant alpha rhythm, the reactivity, um, sleep phenomena, and it becomes increasingly slow. And then actually, when you see brain damage or insults that, you know, uh, may lead to, to, to in individual structural pathology, where you may get seeding of infection, for example, you'll start to see the 
the periodic discharges that we mentioned earlier, the LPDs, and that's usually where there's been an acute insult with destruction of brain tissue, um, either by infarct or infection. And that usually, you know, this is where EG is going really, because we're moving from diagnostic to prognostic. And when you're starting to see these features and particularly loss of reactivity and suppression of the EG, you're now looking at a condition which is, you know, associated with increased in hospital mortality and indeed if they are you know survivors with long-term cognitive and functional outcomes so this is where eg is becoming prognostically useful staying on prognosis for a bit mm. i wondered if we could just talk about the role of eeg in prognosticating with hypoxic ischemic injury and you mentioned the the new guidelines and their the different patterns of change that you might see on an EEG following cardiac arrest, for example. Could you just talk us through those those three categories and and what we mean when we see them, and then what they actually mean for a patient? Yes, uh, I mean that's uh, you know it's been a boom in our business. Um, so you know, out of fossil resuscitation and getting patients into hospital has been one of you know the triumphs really. I think you know of modern medicine, um, and you know lots of lives being saved now by people learning to do basic CPR and defibrillation. You know at the site, and this is just you know it's 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 been a, a miracle in my lifetime. Um, you know, professional seeing that. But these patients, as you know, end up on ITU, and the poor. Um, intensive is to get the pleasure of looking after these uh, patients, you know, where there can either be full restoration or death is pretty a binary outcome, isn't it? Um, you know, so you're absolutely right. The post-cardiac arrest patient who ends up on ITU, um, the early noughties revealed the therapeutic um, hypothermia um, of treatment of, of cardiac arrest for reducing neurological injury to large multi-center trials revealing reduction of the neurological damage, you know, the the fear that everyone had of persistent vegetative state, which isn't really being realized. The vast majority of patients who recover from coma after hypoxic ischemic insult following a cardiac arrest, actually when treated with sedation, ventilatory support, and a therapeutic hypothermia, make really good functional recoveries. Many of them going back to work. I think you're talking about 60 to 70% of patients who worked previously returning to the workplace. So, you know, it's it's a, a disease that people fear and it sounds terrible and coma to the general population, you know, sounds bad. And it is, but this is one of the things that can have a really good outcome. And it goes back to the 1960s when people started using EEG to try and assess severity of the hypoxic ischemic insult and therefore use it prognostically. In fact, as early as the mid-60s, people were actually using it and setting up EEG grading scales for prognostication. And these have recently been um, redefined and rediscovered, really, uh, with the large um, targeted temperature management trials, which um, demonstrated that patients can make good recovery. And we've used um, what's called the American Clinical Neurophysiology Society standardized critical care EEG terminology so that we're trying to be objective. We're trying to categorize patients. Um, we're trying to take out the subjective interpretation of EEG, which it's always prone to, I'm afraid. Uh, but we've got these three phenotypes um, and they don't sound like they split patients terribly well, but into the highly malignant, the malignant and the benign. So the highly malignant, this is uh, patterns where the EEG may be uh, flat, as we mentioned earlier, the suppressed background, 
with or without discharges, sometimes with or without myoclonic status. And these are patterns which really are likely to indicate a very poor outcome. So we'll be doing our neuroprognostication with multimodal measures, which include obviously your clinical uh, assessment, which is obviously the most important, but also coupling that with um, imaging if that's available and and looking at uh, enzymes such as neuron-specific enolase and using the EEG and something called somatosensory evoke potentials or SEPs where you're looking for integrity of the sensory pathway up to the cortex. So the, the highly malignant ones nearly always associated with, with death or survival in the persistent vegetative state. So that can be conveyed to the patient relatives on day three along with the other multimodal measures um, and give a pretty good idea of what the likely neurological outcome would be if management was continued and supportive care given, as it is in some countries. So we kind of know what the outcome of these EEG phenotypes are, because in Italy, Roman Catholic country or Japan, withdrawal of care is not practiced. It's only um, in some of the Western countries where withdrawal of light supporting therapy is considered. So a malignant EEG um, would be one that often again associated with a poor outcome. This is usually where we're seeing these periodic patterns that we mentioned earlier, the lateralized periodic discharges, or more often the generalized periodic discharge. Um, an unreactive EEG where we're trying to see if there's stimulation response uh, to either physical um, or nociceptive stimulation of the patient. The benign patterns, obviously, where you've got absence of all those, so say, malignant features, you're looking for continuous EEG with normal amplitude. And believe you me, we see it in patients who have Glasgow Coma score of three, completely unresponsive, you know, a proportion of them don't even have pupillary responses. And these patients have a normal looking EEG and they will emerge and they do to make a very, very good neurological and cognitive recovery. Um, and this is about 10% of the patients we see. I know that doesn't sound a large number, uh, but bear in mind, you know, many of the patients actually decide in the first day or two whether they're going to wake up and don't reach day three where they're still deeply comatose and unresponsive. It's only a proportion that we get to neuroprognosticate on. And so, you know, coma for three, four days, you'd be thinking that is a very serious neurological outcome. But about 10% of them will go on to make really, really important recoveries. And I've met these patients and I, I tell you, boy, you're glad, you're glad that you said push on, you know, the signs are good here. So um, a real great part of our work is this, um, you know, sadly, the large proportion of patients who get to day three who haven't emerged from coma are going to do badly, either with death or uh, a persistent vegetative state. The vast majority will die. But, you know, if you can identify those patients who are going to make a good um, recovery or potentially good recovery, it's very gratifying to see them walk off an ITU and, and, and speak to them afterwards, I tell you. Yeah, absolutely. Just to uh, pin down on that, just if you could clarify the specifics that are required for the timing and the medications for those patients when you're using this interpretation. Yes, of course. So um, my good friend Jerry Nolan in Bath has, has drawn these together um, with the European Resuscitation Council and European Society of Intensive Care Medicine, the great and good, um, in their guidelines using the multimodal approach. So basically, a patient who has an out-of-hospital arrest, who has return of spontaneous circulation, is transferred to an intensive care unit where ideally there should be cardiac catheterization available on site because that's the one treatment you're going to do, which is the heart. Um, but 
then you've got to protect the brain. And that is through cooling. Um, we don't cool people to, to significant levels of hypothermia. It's just now that you need to just keep them uh, slightly below normothermic for 24 hours when they're sedated. After 24 hours, the patient is gently rewarmed. They're, they're cooled with a cooling blanket typically. Um, and then they're rewarmed in the next 24 hours. The sedation is reduced. Neurology is then assessed serially, seeing if the patient's emerging and waking. And then we get to day three. And if there's been no improvement, you know, you still call Glasgow Coma Score of three, four, then that's the stage at which we start to think about neuroprognostication, starting with the clinical assessment, which the neurologists um, will get involved with. But actually, the intensive care uh, units in regional centres are pretty good at doing um, the assessment themselves. So they may or may not um, involve neurology services, but they'll do the clinical assessment and then they'll ask for an EG, an SEP, and they'll try and get some imaging, you know, just to check a patient hasn't had a, a subarachnoid or, you know, uh, has uh, the the, the uh, radiological features of severe um, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy where you get grey-white matter differentiation is lost, you get cerebral edema, you get loss of, um, you know, structural integrity of the normal uh, sulcine gyration of the brain. So they're looking for structural changes. We're looking for functional changes in the EG, um, categorizing to these um, three fairly, you know, objective um, uh, classification um, criteria. And then we'll do an SEP where we stimulate uh, the median nerve and electrical stimulus and we'll cord from the contralateral sensory cortex to see if there's a response suggesting integrity of the pathway all the way up to the primary semi-sensory cortex. And that helps us with a diagnostic sieve work through to a prognosis for that individual patient. You know, bespoke medicine, this is what we all want, isn't it? Very specific to that that patient. And that will then be conveyed to um, the, the patient's relatives. Uh, in my centre, they're given 24 hours to think about the consequences of that and then make a decision. Um, and that's all around um, uh, withdrawal of care and organ transplantation if the prognosis is likely to be poor. But in a small proportion, I'd say around about 10, 15% of patients, we see favorable signs and we press on with treatment and supportive care, i.e., you know, um, uh, uh, ventilation and, uh, and, and hydration until the patient will um, either recover or we may repeat the neuroprognostic pathway again at um, a day or two later if there's been no uh, recovery to see what direction the, 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 the parameters are going in. That's perfect, Nick. That's so clear. That's really, really helpful. Let's have a quick chat about autoimmune encephalitis. So what I think is really clinically helpful, um, we are practical neurology, um, is how the EEG can help you diagnostically in these tricky cases that come in with seizures, fairly rapid onset, is it herpes? Is it limbic encephalitis? What what clues do we get for diagnosing autoimmune encephalitis in the first place, but also differentiating that into the different types so we know what antibodies to send? Yeah, that, great question. Really interesting area emerging, you know, um, and uh, I 
I'm excited because EEG is used, but I have to temper my excitement because this is the one uh, area when we've been talking about encephalopathy and me being emphasizing that, that, you know, it can change before even the clinical signs become apparent. This is the one situation where I've had my fingers really, really burnt. Um, so a little vignette here, 26-year-old lady presented with um, uh, confusion and a seizure. Uh, we did an EEG and MR. They were completely normal. Autoantibodies were sent to Oxford. Can't tell you which ones, but I think that, you know, the panel, um, all normal. She continued um, with this intermittent confusion. Um, some psychiatric symptoms emerged. Um, she eventually had a scan because autoimmune encephalitis was suspected. Um, and indeed, she had no ovarian cyst. It was taken out. It was not uh, a teratoma or a malignancy. No one was really quite sure what it was, but a PET scan had shown it was very hyperactive. Um, and six months after that original EEG that we'd done, she had diffuse slowing in the EEG, loss of the posterior dominant alpha rhythm, and the NMDA was positive at that stage. They became raised. Um, none of the extreme delta brushes that we talk about, NMDA receptor, um, autoantibody encephalitis, unfortunately, um, which is our, one of our, you know, pathomonic uh, phenotypes. But, uh, you know, we don't always see it, I'm afraid to say. Um, she did initially respond to immunotherapy, but she's come to our attention again because she's developed focal seizures. And indeed, she's now developed temporal lobe abnormalities on the MR as well with a concomitant focal EEG pattern. So just an emerging, and this is two years after her original presentation. So I want to hold my hand up here and say that EEG can be normal early in autoimmune encephalitis. Do not rule that diagnosis out with a normal EG. Keep repeating it. Um, as I say, you know, I can think of a few patients now where we've done an early EG, um, the condition has progressed quite quickly and within, um, you know, three or four days, EG abnormalities, which initially are nonspecific, just with the usual slowing um, and loss of the posterior dominant alpha rhythm. But as I say, you know, this lady, which was a real learning uh, point for me, you know, six months before we saw changes and, 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 and a positive autoantibody, she may be an outlier. I'm not sure, Amy, but um, I'd be interested to know your experience because obviously you've got a great, great deal of experience in this field, whereas I'm learning all the time. Well, it, I mean, it's a slow story, isn't it, compared to what you expect for uh, for uh, an NMDA onset? But I, I think, I think we're only starting to understand the timeframes now. I think, you know, increasingly people are looking for autoimmune encephalitis that presents more slowly, yeah. and I think what we might have ruled out in the past, we're starting to look. And, and I think we are going to see slower onset cases as well, but it, but that's fascinating. I think it I think it also really emphasises that point, doesn't it? Retest and yes. go back go back and start again. And um, you know your EEG sometimes shows something structural, and sometimes your EEG evolves over time. But I think one of the one of the key messages that I've heard from you is you know this is this is a great resource. Use it and use it dynamically both when you're analysing it, but also over time and look at the changes over time. And, you know, we're not all in a situation where we're going to have continuous EEG monitoring, certainly not for everyone, uh, and very soon. Um, and until we've got wonderful AI 
you know, it's important to to just keep repeating those EEGs and, th- and thinking about them in the context of the patients. Yes, absolutely. I, you know, I'd, lo- I'd love to, you know, endorse that and, and say, you know, go to your EEG department, say, you know, because, you know, we all get fatigue, you know, don't we, asking for the same thing, poor old F1 going, I want another EEG. But, you know, if you go down and say, look, you know, we think autoimmune encephalitis is, is, is in the mix here. Um, you know, you're waiting for, for weeks for the antibodies to come back. There's absolutely no harm in repeating an EEG. Um, you know, because it's going to be a, a pointer. And in fact, you know, it is part of some of the consensus diagnostic criteria used in limbic encephalitis already, um, where you may see, as you mentioned, the focal abnormalities, um, temporal and intermittent rhythmic delta activity, where you're getting the limbic involvement or temporal sharp waves, you know, um, suggesting there's a liability to seizure. Um, so yes, absolutely, please do uh, repeat, repeat, repeat. And, and you know, just go down, have a chat with your, your, your physiology and neurophysiology colleagues and say, you know, we think this is in the mix. Um, you know, certainly I, I, I've learned through my mistakes, which is <laughs> the way I, I tend to think most things in life. But, um, you know, I, I hope you would um, continue to use the resource. That's what it's there for. You know, we're happy to do it if we think we can help. So, you know, it's, it's well worth, um, you know, going, going and discussing with your, your neurophysiology department, asking for repeat studies in this instance. Yeah, that's wonderful, and 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 I I'd like to think you've spoken on behalf of all neurophysiologists in the country that they will be extremely <laughs> well to come in to now, anybody <laughs> coming, <laughs> coming for an EEG at any time. Nick, that's been absolutely brilliant. You've you've been so clear. You've been so uh, so preemptive of exactly the right uh, questions or exactly the right answers. You've really, um, really covered so much uh, in in that time. And just to let uh, listeners know, there's even more within the paper. There's some really great examples of EEG changes for those who are less familiar with them. There's a really nice walk through all of the different conditions. And there's a fantastic uh, table in particular. Well, tables one and two, actually. Table one running through uh, the uses in guidelines. So just for reference, um, just like Nick mentioned, the use in autoimmune encephalitis guidelines, um, the the use of the EEG in uh, hypoxic ischemic guidelines, but also uh, some other things like uh, hepatic encephalopathy. Um, And then table two, uh, a good reference one for features in certain encephalopathies and encephalitis cases, uh, showing you the different features and and the uh, rates that you might see them. So so do take a look at that. Remember, the paper's free to download from the link uh, just below the podcast description, and that's open access. So do take a look at that and keep it for reference. Quick reminder that we do three podcasts now for every edition of Practical Neurology. In addition to the Editor's Choice podcast, there's also an Editor's Highlights podcast done by Garant Fuller and Phil Smith. And there's a fantastic case-based podcast, which is uh, Martin Turner interviewing current trainees, Ruth Wood and Zinu Tai, and breaking down some of the really fantastic cases that we publish with each edition of the journal. I hope listeners have enjoyed that. If you have time to leave us a review on the iTunes page and let us know what you think and always keen to hear any suggestions for improvements, then please do that. But big, big thanks to our wonderful guest, Nick, uh, and thank you to his whole team for a fantastic paper. <laughs>